Hey everyone, welcome back to Southern Fried Storytime. We're going to take a brief break from Beauty and the Beast to try to explore some of the possible origins and uh, kind of related stories to Beauty and the Beast. I am recording in a different room of the house today, so you'll have to bear with me if it does sound a little different. I'm trying to see if this room cancels out more of the background noise than the room that I normally like recording in because it's bright and sunny, but that's because it has tons of windows, so it is a little noisier. So if you could just shoot me a message on Facebook or on my webpage or wherever and tell me whether you prefer the sound of recording here or our regular recordings, just, just let me know. First, we're going to start with somewhere you probably don't expect me to go, and that's the story of Baron and Luthien from the legend of like the Lord of the Rings in J.R.R. Tolkien's world. This actually comes from the Silmarillion, so we're going to have to go into Silmarillion 101. This is a really basic kind of my wrap-up of the Silmarillion, so if you want to get a really good, you know, look at what it really is like, I highly encourage you to either read it yourself or check out the Prancing Pony podcast or oh, the Broken Sword on YouTube is another good channel that can explain a lot of what's going on in the Silmarillion. So definitely check it out. It's an excellent, excellent story from which this is kind of a a uh, translated excerpt, I guess is what I'll call it. So starting with Silmarillion 101, it, there's Eru Iluvatar, which is basically this world's equivalent of the Judeo-Christian God, the one God overall, the great creator. Next in the pantheon are the Valar, which are demigods and elementals, such as, you know, a water spirit and a hunt, spirit of the hunt. This is much more like the Greek or the Norse pantheon, where there are several gods, cap you know, smaller gods capable of doing separate things. There are 12 of these folks, plus one that is often not counted because he's the bad guy. He, his name is Morgoth. He's more powerful than the other Valar, but I often wonder if that's simply because... As the only bad guy, he just doesn't put any limits on himself. I don't know. Then, third in this ranking is, of course, the Maiar, which are kind of the equivalent to angels and demons. These are the wizards, Balrogs, Sauron, who is kind of the big bad from the Lord of the Rings movies that we're familiar with, Ungoliant, which is a Maiar who takes the form of a giant spider. We'll see Maiar can can choose, pick and choose different forms for themselves. And then, of course, the eagles. So we get several different kind of ranges here. Wizards are kind of like humans. They can go back and forth and be good or bad. Belrog, Sauron, and Ungoliant are exclusively bad, being corrupted by Morgoth early in the creation of the world. And then eagles are always exclusively good. So when the eagles give you advice, you definitely want to follow it because they're kind of the incorruptible good guys. As we've seen, wizards can go either way. Now, when I talk about Arda, I am talking about the world of Lord of the Rings. Middle-earth, where we meet Frodo and Bilbo and all the characters we're familiar with, is one continent in the world of Arda. So, when I talk about Arda, I am talking about that world. And at the beginning of Arda, the whole world was lit by two lamps, and it was just day, time, all the time. However, those lamps were taken out by Morgoth. In response, the Valar made two trees, one gold and one silver, and filled them with light to light the world. At the same time, the Silmarils were three gems that contained that same light, and they were created. Later, like a lot later, Morgoth returned and stole the Silmarils and smote each of the trees so that Ungoliant, the spider, could drink the light from within them, which made her stronger. 
When Morgoth then refused to give her the Silmarils to eat, as they had arranged previously, they have a real bad breakup, guys, and some Belrogs need to step in and rescue Morgoth from Ungoliant. He sets the glorious Silmarils, which seem to cause a similar obs obsession as the One Ring, um, in an iron crown. They cause him so much pain that they char his flesh black because he is dark and they are light, but his greed matters more to him than his pain. Elsewhere, the Maya, or angel, named Melian, married Thingol, the elf. There are only three instances in all of the stories of Middle-earth where an elf marries a non-elf, which is why people get so, so salty about the dwarf-elf romance in the Hobbit movie, which we don't see in the Hobbit or any other book. It's, it's incredibly rare for elves to marry outside of their own species, and when they do, it tends to literally change the entire world and history as we see here. So it's kind of a big deal, and that's why people get pretty upset about the fact that the makers of the movies just kind of threw one in there because it kind of cheapens the marriages that were actually a big deal in the stories. All of these three mixed marriages occur within the same family, and it starts here with Melian and Thingol. In this case, I think it's pretty clear that Thingol really married up because remember the hierarchy I was talking about before? Maya being third on that list Elves come down afterwards. They are called the children of Iluvatar, but they are nowhere near the power of Amaya or the wisdom of Amaya. So Thingol did good. He married way better than his station. Melian is often seen giving very wise counsel to those around her, and of course, no one ever listens, hence why so much goes wrong in the Silmarillion. These two have a daughter named Luthien, who is considered the most beautiful of all of Iluvatar's children. And now, my friends, the stage is set. Enter Baron. He descends from a noble line of men who are close friends with Thingol's brother, and he wears an elfish ring as an evidence-slash-way to identify this, that they're, they're elf friends. So, he should be a good match for Luthien, but... 1. He's a mortal man, and she's way immortal. Like, more immortal, immortal and magical than most elves. 2. He has no kingdom or lands due to the many wars and political issues in this story that I'm not going to spend forever getting into. Again, Prancing Pony podcast, guys. Or three, ain't nobody good enough for Thingol's little girl. But not like in a protective way, in a possessive way. He actually refers to her as an object he owns. Both Baron and Thingol refer to refer to Luthien as a treasure, but Baron does it in the context of saying that he treasures her, whereas Thingol refers to her as a treasure or a thing that he owns and collects. Baron has gotten separated from his companions and lost in the same woods where Shelob lives. You know, Shelob, the spider that Sam slays to, fr to save Frodo, Sister of the spiders that attack Bilbo and the dwarves in Mirkwood. Daughter of Ungoliant who sucked the life uh, out of the trees. Yeah, that jerk. He somehow made it through the evils and the fog and the monsters and the labyrinth. The labyrinth was actually put there by Melian. It's called the uh, the Girdle of Melian. It's there to protect her husband's her and her husband's forest. So that's, that's there on purpose. It's supposed to be impenetrable. Somehow Baron gets through, which leads me to believe that Melian let him through, <laughs> because I don't see if if Shelob can't get through, and Baron can. I th I think Melian let him through. 
that's just me. There, it doesn't say that, but I just don't see any other way where a mortal man's getting through that magical barrier. Anyway, so it stays around the elven realm, and he experiences such such horror here that he is unable to speak of it until the day he dies. This is notable because he does spend a considerable amount of time in Sauron's dungeon and doesn't seem to be that traumatized by that kind of situation, which to me sounds really, really awful. So if this was so much worse than that that he can't even speak of it, something awful must have happened in these forests. During these wanderings, Baron stumbled into a hemlock grove where he found Luthien, singing and dancing in the safety of her father's forest. Baron's trials had made him look wild and savage as a dangerous beast, and when Luthien saw him she was afraid and ran away, but he had fallen in love with her instantly, and as she, she ran he called out to her, calling her Tenuviel, or the elfish word for nightingale. She paused, realizing that he was in fact a person, and as she inspected him closer, she also fell in love with him. Their eyes met, and they gazed into each other's eyes for the better part of a year. A year, guys. That's, that's a long time. If you've ever had a staring contest, I couldn't make it that long, that's for darn sure. I don't know if I have a lot of guys listening to this podcast. I tend to think of it as more female-centric. Fairy tales were created you know, as a way for women to tell stories to other women while they were working and stuff like that. And just somehow I consider that I'm probably most of the time talking to other ladies. But if there are some brothers out there listening, my bros, this should not be your go-to move. If you see a lovely lady that you think you want to marry, the long-term stare-down is not going to make that that happened, the long-term stare-down is going to make her escalate from pepper spray to hand cannon, guys. This is not going to be a winner just because it was for Baron. It, it, it's fiction for a reason. This would not work. Do not try, <laughs> try this. But it worked for Luthien, and they began to see each other secretly after that. One of Luthien's friends, though, was jealous because he was in love with her, so he naturally sold her out to her father, who then captured Baron and brought him before him, though he swore to Luthien that he would not kill him. This came in handy, because he almost immediately did want to kill him, and uh, even more so when Baron asked for Luthien's hand. Thingol is very insulting in this confrontation with Baron, but Baron doesn't rise to it. it. The only time he even kind of says anything back is when he says, hey, my dad and your brother are really good friends, and I don't think... I've done anything to deserve you treating me this way when our families have had a really good relationship until now. But, uh, yeah, in other words, he doesn't rise to it, really. Melian also advises her husband to be thoughtful and not to do anything rash, which, again, to me, reinforces the thought that maybe she let Baron in in the first place. As always, though, no one listens to Melian, and Thingol sends Baron on what he thinks is an impossible suicide quest as a bride price. He wants a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. Whole armies of elves and men have been sent at Morgoth and failed. So, okay, think about how powerful Sauron is in Lord of the Rings and all of the armies that are unable to defeat him and all of that kind of thing. This guy was Sauron's boss and superior officer. Sauron is this guy's servant. So... This guy is so much worse, and naturally Thingol assumes he's never going to see Baron again when sending him on this task. When Baron lightheartedly says that, you know, it's a small price to pay to be with Luthien. 
Melian tries yet again to reason with her husband. So far, their realm has been able to stay out of the conflict with Morgoth, and the Silmarils seem to cause strife wherever they go. You don't even really want to talk about the Silmarils, let alone get one for yourself. They're nothing but trouble. Of course, he dismisses her, and Baron goes to find the jewel. Some elves have the gift of foresight, and as a half-Maya, Luthien is more powerful than your average elf. She had a vision of Baron suffering in the prison of Morgoth's lieutenant, Sauron. In early versions of Tolkien's tale, Sauron was the king of cats, and he was literally like a giant anthropomorphic cat, like the Thundercats guys. And I'm so glad he didn't stick with this, because it'd be hard to feel that same kind of shadowy menace from a great big cat. It would make it too comical. But at the same time, it makes what happens later, and uh, who gets the upper end of him in a fight in this story kind of, kind of interesting. So I do kind of like that that's where Tolkien's head was at, just because it does make this fight later pretty interesting. After this vision that Luthien had, she decided she had to save Baron, but she asked the same friend for help that had sold her out before, and naturally, he did it again. Thingol, her father, had her imprisoned in the top of a massive beech tree so that she couldn't go after Baron. If you don't think that qualifies her as a maiden in the tower on the Arm Thompson Uther tail type index like Rapunzel, she literally uses her hair to escape, which would take some skills, I admit. She uses her long black hair to make it into a cloak that she can then use to enchant her captors to fall into a deep sleep, and she escaped. On her way to rescue Baron, Luthien met Huan, the Hound of Valinor, and Huan loved Luthien immediately and brought him to, or brought her to his elf masters to keep her safe. These elves know that Luthien is an elf princess and the daughter of Amaya, and since she is so, so beautiful, they plan to force her into a marriage for political gain in order to build an alliance with Thingol, and they capture her. Huan feels really badly about this. He is the best boy, and it was not his intention to get her thrown into any kind of prison. And whenever one of these elf lords wanted to make an advance on Luthien, they found the giant dog the size of a horse, faithfully protecting her from his own masters. One day, Luthien was worried because Huan seemed to have left her, until he reappeared and dropped her magic cloak at her feet and used one of his only three times that the Valar granted for him to speak to tell her how to escape, and they ran away together. Eventually, they made it to Sauron's stronghold, and Sauron sends werewolves out one by one to kill them. But with Luthien's magic and Huan's strength, they slay them all, until Sauron himself eventually had to come out in the form of a great wolf. Huan grabbed Sauron by the neck in his jaws, and as the deceiver changed forms and fought desperately, he was unable to escape the Hound of Valinor, until he turned into a vampire and flew away, bleeding from his neck. The irony of a vampire being the one bleeding from his neck is not lost on me, guys. Here, when Luthien is reunited with Baron, Huan parted ways with the couple and returned to his master. But when they meet his again, his master wants to kill Luthien because her escape led to him kind of getting exiled. So he's mad at her about it. So Huan turned on him and protected the couple. Using his second chance to speak, he told them that he would enter Angband and bring them the skins of two of Morgoth's servants with which they had disguised themselves. 
Luthien danced and used her magic on Morgoth until he fell into a deep sleep and Baron was able, able to pry a Silmaril from his crown, fulfilling the bride price of having a Silmaril in his hand. Unfortunately, during their escape, that same hand was eaten by Kerkaroth, the greatest of werewolves, Silmaril and all. Swallowed the whole thing, guys. After this, Huan and Thingol join Baron to hunt down the werewolf and to get the stone back and to get rid of this werewolf who has been driven kind of insane by the Silmaril and is just causing all kinds of problems. Baron and Huan slay Karkaroth, but Huan is mortally wounded. His last chance to speak was to bid his beloved Baron and Luthien farewell, and then he passes away with Baron's palm on his head. Baron was then carried home to Luthien where he too died of his wounds. Broken-hearted, Luthien also laid down and died and went to the halls of Mandos, Lord of the Dead. She was so broken-hearted that Mandos gave her a choice. She could remain here in the halls of Mandos with her people forever, but without Baron, or she can have a mortal life with Baron. She obviously chose door number two, and Mandos would never give this sort of choice to anyone ever again. Together, they have one child, who would be the grandfather of Lord Elrond, father of Arwen, who makes a similar choice as Luthien when she marries Aragorn, being the last of the three elves to marry outside of their race. As for Luthien's father, Thingol, he is gifted a necklace by a dwarven king. And I lost my place. Ah, here he is. And since he's become obsessed with the Silmaril, he wants to put the Silmaril into this necklace so he can wear it all the time and never be parted from it. He asks for some dwarves to do this and they agree on a payment, but spending time with the Silmaril makes them want it too. They demand the necklace, and stone and all, as payment, claiming that they have a right to it since it was once dwarfish. The elf is upset at the dwarves for reneging on their deal and the dwarves kill Thingol, who should have listened to Melian and left the Silmaril alone in the first place. The dwarves then also raided Thingol's treasury at the same time, because why not at this point? Baron then chased down the dwarves and took back the necklace which Luthien wore for the rest of the days of her life, which was shortened by the stone. I couldn't find anything real on why the stone shortened the lives of Baron and Luthien, only that it did, and because, like, no land could hold so much glory or something really vague like that. So there's no specifics on why this made their lives shorter, but it did. This was also the start of all of the discord between elves and dwarves. Which lasted until literally the Battle of the Ring. Next, we have the story of Cupid and Psyche. First of all, Cupid is not what you think. Cupid, or Eros, was not a chubby baby with wings and a bow. He was actually a very handsome young man with wings and a bow. Both gods and mortals feared Cupid because, as we all know, he shot, you know, a shot with one of his golden arrows could make one fall in love. But what most people don't know is that he also had lead arrows that could cause hatred. He was known for being mischievous and a bit of a bratty prankster, so most people and gods tried to stay out of his way. Psyche is a mortal princess so beautiful that people were starting to leave the temples of Aphrodite in order to worship her. Spoiler alert, Aphrodite hates it when she is not the center of attention, so she ordered her son, Eros, to make Psyche fall in love with the most detestable human on the planet. This seems like an overreaction, but trust me, it's totally in character for her. 
While prepping his golden arrow, though, Eros accidentally injures himself and falls in love with Psyche. Around the same time, Psyche's father begins to get frustrated because while she has lots of obsessed fans, she's had no real suitors. So he went to where everyone goes when they want to stir up trouble, an oracle. Don't believe me? I have a whole season on Greek mythology and stuff like that, and these the oracles are all over it like cheese on pasta, guys. It's lots of oracle stuff happening there. The oracle told Psyche's dad that she was destined to marry a horrible monster and that Zeus himself was afraid of this monster. He would be required to bring her to a mountainside where she would meet her monstrous husband. Once she was there, Zephyrus, the spirit of the west wind, picked her up and brought her to a magnificent palace. And uh, in this palace, there were more riches than anyone can imagine. She was waited on hand and foot by invisible servants, and every night her husband would visit her, cloaked with invisibility. Eros was afraid of what Aphrodite would do if she found out that he had married the woman she hated, and he was afraid that a relationship between a god and a mortal could not last. Looking at Zeus as an example, I can see why he thought that. Still, the more time the two spent together and got to know each other, the more they fell in love. One day, Psyche asked to see her two older sisters, thinking that they would be happy to find out that she's alive and doing so well. Eros agrees as long as she promised not to believe the terrible things that they would say about him. When the sisters arrive, they're struck with anger and jealousy as both are stuck in unhappy marriages to much older men, as tended to happen to princesses. So they convince Psyche that her husband is a hideous monster who wants to kill her, and she'd better kill him first. She brought a lamp and a knife to her bedroom, and when her husband fell asleep, she lit the lamp only to see a shockingly handsome man with white feathery wings. When she leaned forward for a better look, a drop of hot oil fell on Eros and burned him. Furious and feeling betrayed, he left her. Her sisters then each threw themselves off the same cliff that the west wind took her from to try their chances with Eros. Yeah, they died. Then Psyche tried going to the various temples to find Eros, and even the goddess of marriage herself, Hera, said that as much as she wanted to help, and so did some of the other Olympians, they could not risk angering Aphrodite. You want the Trojan War? That's how you get the Trojan War! When she finds out Aphrodite is looking for her, Psyche then just decides to turn herself in. Aphrodite orders Psyche to complete four labors to get her blessing, which... Like a thingal, she never really intends to give. First, Aphrodite rips off Psyche's clothes and beats her almost to death. Just excessive, but fine. Then she has her sort a pile of wheat, barley, chickpeas, and lentils into separate piles. Hearing the princess cry, a bunch of local ants decide to help out, giving me huge Cinderella vibes on this story, guys. Next, Aphrodite orders her to grab a tuft of golden fleece from the nearby sheep. The sheep were massive and very aggressive. Aphrodite was hoping that this task would get the princess killed. But a nearby river told Psyche to wait until the afternoon when the sheep calmed down a little bit and then pluck the fleece that had gotten caught in the grass and branches and twigs as the sheep had played. Next, Aphrodite sent Psyche to collect cold water from the highest point of a spring, where she would find hundreds of deadly snakes. Feeling that this was just a little bit unfair, Zeus sent his eagle to take the jug and fill it for her. Look at you, Zeus, doing something nice. Maybe there's some personal growth there. 
I don't know, maybe he just wants to be on Eros's good side, seeing as there's a lot of love trouble in that guy's life. Either way, you don't often see Zeus doing a good thing, and so we're gonna we're gonna clap our hands for him this one time. The fourth task was to go to the underworld and receive a dose of Persephone's beauty. Out of curiosity, Persephone opened the little box, because apparently she had never heard of that Pandora girl and how that kind of situation goes, only to find the sleep of Hades within. So, beauty sleep, I guess, is the secret. This knocked her unconscious in the middle of the underworld. Yeesh. Eros, however, has finally recovered from his hot oil burn and can no longer stand being away from Psyche, so he goes to the underworld, wakes her up, and takes her back. Zeus blesses the marriage, hoping that it'll help Eros, Eros calm down and mature to finally be tied into a marriage. He orders Aphrodite to back off and give Psyche ambrosia, making her the immortal goddess of the soul, and they have a massive marriage ceremony slash vow renewal because the two were already married. Interestingly, another name for Psyche is Anima, which in the game Final Fantasy X is the name of a summon Aeon whose own marriage outside of her race also led to great misery. You're thinking, this is great, Nikki. These are fun stories, but what does any of this have to do with Beauty and the Beast? Why would you interrupt that story for these two little ones? First of all, when Baron met Luthien, he scares her at first and is described as looking like a wild beast. Also, Huan, the horse-sized dog, is definitely a beast, and he loved the beauty. A certain class of people like to throw shade at Tolkien for not having, quote-unquote, strong female characters, and people often counter-argue by talking about Eowyn killing the Witch King with Mary. People often miss Huan and Luthien taking out all of Sauron's werewolves and destroying his tower. Melian and her great power and wisdom, which protected her whole kingdom with magic until she died, or the six powerful female Valar. I thought they deserved a mention and some credit. Cupid and Psyche are thought to be the inspiration for Beauty and the Beast, from a great beauty to the enchanted castle with invisible servants. The footprints are all there, but what we will get back to next week has grown into a story all its own. I just wanted to touch on Cupid and Psyche because there are so many similarities. And as I continue the story, I think you'll get to see a lot of those similarities for yourself. And I love all of these stories. You know me, I love any story about a good doggo, even though they all always inevitably make me cry. Because we can't write a story about dogs that doesn't make you want to cry so hard you throw up. Ugh! telling you i have a rule no dog stories and no horse stories i kept it together for this one but i had to read it a few times before i was able to keep it together for this one so you know not doing great guys i like dogs i also think it's funny that since sauron was supposed to be the king of cats and he gets beaten by a dog i thought that was an interesting not beauty and the beast related situation but i thought it was funny anyway because these all involve Beauty and a Beast, or are a direct inspiration for Beauty and the Beast, I thought it would be interesting for you guys to see how far this story has come and changed and evolved over time before we get back to the main story. Just to kind of show you how strange this kind of side hustle job is, where I read through many different versions of these stories, and sometimes they are as far apart as Beauty and the Beast and Cupid and Psyche, but they are related and part of the same base story. And this is how we get stories that go from 
the basic story of Beauty and the Beast or Cupid and Psyche and become the Disney version of these stories. These stories are so, so old and ancient that they do evolve dramatically over time. Even the story of Baron and Luthien, Tolkien published three different versions of, but he wrote hundreds of different versions of that story, trying to perfect it throughout his whole life. He called it the kernel of the story, meaning the, the entire story of the ring. He considered it the most important part of the story of the ring, and on his own grave, he had the name Baron carved along with Luthien on his wife Edith's grave. The story I told you today was what he considered the most important, most precious part of the Lord of the Rings, and it, to me, ties in perfectly with our episodes on Beauty and the Beast and shows how, just as his story changed throughout his lifetime, these stories, these legends, these myths change dramatically throughout history. And I wanted to give you a little peek behind the curtain to see how vastly different some of these versions of the same story can be, not just from country to country, but from century to century. And I hope that you enjoy seeing that kind of process as much as I love going through it every single week as we have these talks together. Without further ado, next episode, we'll jump right back into Beauty and the Beast. And thank you so much for listening today.